Romans 14, verse 13 to 23. And that's on page 802, the Church Bible. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make make up your mind. Instead, make up your mind. Do not put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brothers for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So I'm not quite sure whether you prayed before you came. I hope you did. I hope you prepared your heart. And we have to do that sometimes, don't we? Because we're cluttered people. I hope you've made yourself ready. I hope you've got a sense of need. I hope you know you've got a hungry soul. And I hope you know that you will eat almost any kind of junk food for your soul. Uh, But here we get the real deal. We get the thing that we need. So why don't we pray together that the Lord, by his spirit, would awaken us to the things he's got to say about us and we would see great visions of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a simple room, in a simple place, doing a simple thing, we can hear the words of the true and living God. And we need that today, Lord. Please would you come. We dare to reach out in faith and say, Lord, speak to us of things yet unseen. Teach us of our own heart, our own need. Teach us of your holiness, your, your grandeur, your vision, your wisdom, your grace. Help us to see and know what it looks like to love. Help us to go beyond our natural ability. Help us, Lord, to respond in worship, in praise and in faith and in love. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So listen, we've got lofty aims because we have a glorious saviour, but the church so often falls so far short. Now I want you to listen to this story, and here's your question. You ready? As you listen, who was right, who was wrong? What should they have done, and what did it make God look like? Who was right, who was wrong, what should they have done, and what did it make God look like? Are you ready? Ready? 
so this is the story, true story, of a church some time ago that got into an unholy argument over whether or not they ought to have a Christmas tree at their Christmas church services. I might have told some of you this before, okay? Remember? Who was right? Who was wrong? What should they have done? And what did it make God look like? You listening? You tuned in? Okay. Some in the congregation thought that a tree was absolutely fine, you know, and it's just a good thing. They know all things are good because Jesus is the most important and a tree is just a nice pretty thing to put up there. Lights are oh, festive feeling, lovely. Others thought it was a pagan practice and it sends out the wrong message. And so they got very, very angry and both groups got very, very angry. We think a tree's fine, we're allowed to have a tree. Didn't say don't have a tree in the Bible or anything. Trees are a pagan practice. We're, we're, we're a holy people set apart for the purposes of God. They got very, very angry and they started to physically fight. One group grabbed hold of the tree and physically ragged it outside the building and put it in the car park. The others, disgruntled and angry, pushed them out of the way, grabbed hold of the tree and put it back inside. And this argument escalated so much to the point where the, the, the church split into two factions and they sued each other in a public court. Who was right? Who was wrong? What should they have done? And what did it make God look like? Shout out an answer to any one of those three questions. Go on. Both right. Okay. What do other people think? Sorry? Or wrong. Okay. Both right and both wrong. Are we happy with that so far? Good. What should they have done? Sat down and talked about it. Oh, I knew somebody had come out with the good old-fashioned, let's tolerate and compromise. Can I tell you that the modern view of tolerance, which basically is be non-judgmental and say that these things don't matter and just get on with people, the modern view of tolerance, that is so sub-biblical. It is utterly sub-biblical. It's utterly sub-Christian. I'm saying sometimes it has to happen in the world, but if that's our highest aim as Christians, then we have aimed so far low of what Jesus would call us to. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Good. Uh, what's it make God look like? If you're not a believer and you're in that community, you live opposite or you're driving by in your car and you see these Christians ragging each other's hair out and pulling on a tree, what does it give you the impression that the Christian message is all about? Christmas trees. It's like... And they just look on and they go, you freaks, you losers. You turn up every week to think about Christmas trees. Now, it is about a tree, but it's not about a Christmas tree. What kind of tree is it about? What is the gospel Christian message about? The most monumental tree that has ever stood and will ever stand on planet Earth. What is the tree that the Christian message is about? The tree of the Easter cross, where the eternal, sovereign Son of God hung in ignominy and shame on a cross to pay for the sins of the, of the world. Was that the message that that community were getting about from that church? No. So what do you do? What do you do when you have people who love Jesus, and let's assume that those people there did, they love Jesus, but on what we were calling last week, and we were talking about it last week, a, 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 an opinion or a disputable or a debatable matter where the Bible seems to not say that you can't do it, but some people might think, well, it might be better not to do it. How do you interact with people? Do you sit down and talk about it and have a nice little chat? What do you do? So let's be really clear. What Paul is talking about here is disagreements, but of course it's not over matters of things that the Bible is dead clear on. So it's not like, um, well, shall I cheat on my benefits, or shall I sleep around, or shall I tear people to bits with gossip? 
The Bible's dead clear on that kind of thing. But if you remember, in the Roman church, there was a bunch of people who'd come from a Jewish background, and all they'd ever known was the, the thing that they were quite culturally proud of, which was their food laws and their, uh, their calendar laws about which days were special to honour God and which kind of food you did and didn't eat to honour God. And they, came to, they became Christians and realised that Jesus was the main thing, but it was really difficult for them to let go of the way they'd been brought up, because the way they'd been brought up was an understanding of this is how we honour God. And then you've got people who come to, to faith from a pagan background, uh, and they'd never kept dietary food laws. They'd never sort of kept special days. They were just like, isn't this awesome? I'm saved by God um, uh, through Jesus. He's everything I stand on, and he's made all things clean. And so you've got these two people, and, well, as I said last week, it's going to be really difficult to put on a church picnic, isn't it? They're like, no burgers, can't do it Sunday. They're like, we like burgers, and Sunday's the best day of the week. How do, you, how do you be one group of people together like that? And last week we learned the first part of the answer. The biggest and most important thing is your attitude. Your attitude is one of accept people. Now accept isn't put up with, remember we heard that last week? Accept is warmly embrace and welcome as God has you with all your junk that goes along with it. So what you have is an attitude towards somebody who lands in a different place to you of acceptance. That's your attitude. The second half of the chapter is now your action. What are you actually going to do about it? Because you've got to actually set the day for a barbecue and decide you're going to eat chicken or decide what you're going to eat. Okay. So what do you actually do? And that's what the whole of this second part of the chapter is all about. There was a dis disagreement on how to live in some areas which the Bible is quiet on. Uh, what do you do? Because it, if you get it wrong, it could destroy the community that God has brought together. And the whole big things in the community, i.e. salvation of Jesus, will get dropped down the priority list. And that's not acceptable. So we've got three things here. Three things that he's going to show about how, and it's all around what it actually looks like to love people, um, to act in love towards people who've, who've landed in a different place to you. So I've got three things. I don't know whether Joe's sticking up a, uh, as we go along or not, but this one, love sacrifices to protect a brother, love keeps the gospel central, and love works to build people up above all other things. Okay, so let's dig in. Somebody read for us verses 4 13, 14, and 15, please. Somebody read that for us now. Who's going to read that? Go for it, Mark. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on Make up your mind not to put on any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced no food is unclean. But if anyone doubts something is unclean, then it is unclean. Brother is distressed because of what you eat. You are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ Thank you for reading that. Cool. So I don't know. Now, listen, I'm going to let you into exactly how sick and twisted I am as an individual. When I was a teenager, I used to play and used to love and enjoy playing that game of tripping people up. Walking along, you know, you know, sort of, you're walking along as a group and you just like kick the heel out of one of them, one of them goes, whoa, brilliant. Uh, I, I just thought that was hilarious. I just thought it would make them stumble. Why not? I carried it into my parenting. And I'm not going to cry now because I nearly do when I think about it. But there was this time when I was out at the park 
and I don't know how, how old she was. I think it was, Be- uh, yeah, it was Bethany. She, she can't have been more than about seven or eight years old. And I'm just messing around. We're larking about. And we're walking back to the car in the middle of the field. And I thought, kick the heel game. And so I just went up behind her and just went, boom. And she just did a monumental <laughs> into the mud. And she got up. Those faces that said, how could you, you're my father. And I felt so small. Because let's face it, to make somebody else stumble is small and pathetic. And I had to face the fact that I'm small and pathetic. And the Apostle Paul here would say, that's the big thing. If you make somebody else stumble, you are small and pathetic. Now he comes straight out and he says there is an answer to this one. It is right that since, for this is for in Rome, for the, the Jewish believers, the, 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 what's in your diary and what's in your diet now is not the place where we take our stand. You are free to eat whatever you jolly well please and to do stuff on whichever day you want to. We're not living in, under the Jewish religion anymore. But if you've come from a background that's got stricter rules like this and you feel as if those ones that are not officially, uh, not actually in the Bible but you feel like it's attached to your whole biblical obedience, if those things are tightly closed together and somebody comes along and living it large and scoffing and doing anything they like on any day of the week and, and it's difficult for this person over here to detach the two things from what is clear Bible teaching like do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder and... Uh, do, do not eat beef. Okay, if it's difficult for them to cut it apart, and you sort of give an example and live out your liberty so large that they are caused to stumble or do something against their conscience, then by you doing that, you've done wrong. You've not acted in love at all. So what we've got here is Paul is really worried about people who who are enjoying their Christian liberty, living boldly and arrogantly and being a threat to the conscience of those who've got a sensitive conscience, okay? And I mean, you you guys get this principle. I mean, if you're you're a parent, you know this. There's certain things that you know you're free to do, that because your your kids are still growing and they're still developing and they're still coming to a full understanding, you don't do it in front of them because you know they won't be able to handle it or they'll they'll think it's wrong and it'll, it'll mix them all up a little bit. Something similar is happening a little bit here because the big thing that God says, don't ever allow somebody to go against their conscience, even if their conscience is misinformed. Because the conscience is the heart of the person and how they relate to God. So, so a good example would be, um, uh, you know, a, a couple of teenagers perhaps, uh, and, uh, and, and they want to be able to go out for the weekend and borrow dad's car. So there's a brother and a sister. The sister's slightly older, uh, the brother is slightly younger, and the sister, older sister, wants the car for herself. So she goes and say, says to her dad, listen, can me and my brother borrow the car for the weekends? And dad goes, yeah, it's absolutely fine. You can borrow the car if you like, both of you. And she comes back and she wants the car. So what does she tell the brother? Dad said, just I can borrow it. Okay. And the brother gets all disgruntled, all angry, all frustrated. And she drives the car and he says, give me the keys. I'm going to drive the car. Was he allowed to drive the car? 
should he have driven the car? He was allowed to drive the car, but he shouldn't have driven the car. Because when he did do it, drive the car, it was an act of disobedience. He'd gone against his conscience. And it's, he stumbled. Now this is really, really important. There's a couple of other Bible verses that talk quite an awful, uh, a lot about the danger of making other believers, if the, the centre of their life and their walk is their relationship with God, if you make that difficult... Or if you in any way entice, it's, it, the words trip up and uh, entice somebody towards going against their conscience. Uh, and remember, the conscience is what we walk in before God every day. We walk with the Lord. And if, and if the very essence of sin is to sort of do my own thing in respect of God and say, well, I don't care about what you're saying. Uh, I'll just do it my thing. I want something more than you. If that's, if I nurture that attitude of breaking my conscience when I first do it, it hurts, doesn't it? That's why we have a conscience. It sort of hurts. But if I'm, if people do things that help me to make it hurt less, then I'm an incredibly spiritually precarious place. In fact, look to, look at what the, the the verse actually says, and this is a very strong word. Okay, verse fourteen. As one who is in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in, in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother. Now that word destroy, but and Paul uses it, talks about people who have been in terrible spiritual peril. So do you get what love looks like, what Paul's saying? If the whole attitude towards this whole issue is, well, I want to have an accepting issue, what do I actually do? My biggest priority is to lay down my liberties and my choices if there is any possibility that my liberty and choices may be detrimental to somebody else's spiritual conscience. Because that's to put them on a slippery slope towards spiritual disaster. And in fact, it says there, it says that it's so strong that it could not be strong. Look at the end of verse 15. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not by your exercise of your liberty do anything to endanger somebody spiritually. I'm not talking about somebody who comes up to you and goes, I, I, I'm just offended by that. This isn't about preferences. It's like, I'm offended by the fact you wear a suit. Uh, uh, sorry, you don't wear a suit on a Sunday, you wear jeans. No, no, that's a preference. That's not, they're not going to sin because of that. But maybe if it's, well, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Jane won't mind me telling you this. She was brought up in a pretty strict home when she went to university. Uh, she, had, she was a little bit like an elastic that had been pulled tight. And the, she met a whole stack of Christians who were not going out and getting hammered or anything like that. But they, she'd been told, don't drink as a Christian, which isn't what the Bible says, by the way. Um, she got sort of quite a, um, a sensitive conscience to that. She pulled back like a spring. She went to university. She got involved in the Christian Union. And after the Christian Union meeting, every, every Thursday night, they'd go off down the pub and have a few drinks. She was like, this is terrible. Uh, and she wouldn't have a drink the first few weeks. And then after that, she was like, well, it can't do any harm, can it? And before that, before long, the first few months of her life in university was spent going out and getting absolutely hammered and going to all the clubs. Her conscience had just gone. It went. She's not like that anymore. Praise the Lord. He was very good and gracious to her. But there was an example of Christians who were using their legitimate freedom and it did her a lot of spiritual damage. 
a lot. Now, was she responsible for drinking? They didn't make a drink. But the drinking and the not drinking wasn't the issue. It was the attitude of her heart and how she related to the Lord. Do you understand how that works? And some of you are sitting here and you're listening to me and you get thinking all modern, aren't you? Like, if I want to be authentic to myself and what I believe, I have to live my views irrespective of the impact on other people. After all, it's their problem. I just have to be real and live real and that's what God would want me to do. Now, that is so postmodern and it's so unbiblical. Or else if you're sitting there going, oh, isn't it annoying that I can't do this or that? When such and such is around, oh, I wish they'd just get over it and go. And, oh, I can just just go and do it. Can I tell you, no true believer who loves the Lord Jesus would ever say, "It's my life; I'll do what I want." Because you know that Jesus, you were so screwed up and messed up, and so your spiritual well-being was in was so much in the pit that Jesus had to go into a pit to call you, bring you out. He died for you. He loves us. He loves our spiritual well-being. And as we receive that from him, it gives us a new desire to be much more bothered about other people's spiritual well-being than eating burgers or whatever else it may be and getting our preferences or whether you have a Christmas tree in the room or not. Do you see that? No, Jesus died for us. You know, sometimes Christians, by the, where they're at and the, the places where they take a stand, will, will annoy us or upset us. But we've got to be really careful that when we exercise, if we are somebody who exercises liberty, if it's exercising it in a way that is going to damage people spiritually, it's not. It doesn't matter if you sort. If somebody's a legalist and they're like, "Oh, you, 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 you can't be a Christian and do that." Well, you're actually able to go back to them and say, well, I'm terribly sorry whether you're offended by that or not. But if you're offended by that, you'll probably be offended by the gospel that tells you you've got absolutely no righteousness and all your rule keeping won't help you. You need a saviour to dig you out of your pit. Now, that's a legalist. Now, we're not talking about legalists here. We're talking about people who've just got a sensitive conscience, maybe because of their upbringing, their background to certain things. What we will do is we will lay down our liberty because we value people's spiritual conscience. So what have I called this one? Love acts in such a way and sacrifices to protect other people's spiritual well-being. So what should they have done with the Christmas tree? What should those who've said, I just, I'm free to have a Christmas tree. I like Christmas trees. They're great. What should they have said? Doesn't matter. If, you, if you're worried that pagan, Christmas trees are pagan, we'll go without that's absolutely fine. We don't want to worry your conscience. We don't want to worry your conscience. That's what they should have done. Instead of kicking up a stink. That's what they should have done. Second of all, where do we get to? Second of all, much more quickly. Uh, hold on, I'll find me. Ah, yes, okay. So, love keeps the gospel central. Somebody read for us verses uh, 16, 17, 18. Yes, 16 to, 16 to 18. Somebody read that for us. Who's going to read that bit? Brilliant. So sacrifice for people's spiritual well-being so you don't do any harm. Next thing, and this again, this is the neighbours or the people driving by who are seeing this. Love keeps the gospel absolutely central so nobody can, it can't slip off the radar. So um, a former police officer tells of the tactics of a roving band of thieves. 
They enter into a shop as a group. One or two of them separates themselves from the group and the others start a loud commotion at the other ends in some sort of distraction. It grabs the attention of the, of, of the shopkeepers and the other customers and all eyes are on the big commotion that is really a big fluff about nothing. All eyes are on there, they're on the disturbance and the accomplices fill their pockets with their uh, whatever it is, the gear, the merchandise, the cash leaving anyone without any suspicions and hours, sometimes days later, the victim of the crime realises that things are missing and then the police get called. Now I'm hoping by telling you this, I haven't given you examples of how to go out and be shifty. Okay, that, that wasn't the point in telling you. The point is, is that it's very easy for something shady to distract from what is really important and what is actually going on. Uh, and what we ha had read there was was Paul saying, we have to go out of our way. Look, verse uh, 16, I'll, I'll read it there. Hold on. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is, excuse me, that is the centre of things. In verse 19, it's going to say, therefore let us make every effort. We've got to apply ourselves to making sure that this gospel thing is kept is held and kept exactly straight on. In other words, people will start or could start to think Christianity is about things that you do, the things that you say yes to, the exercise of your liberty, rather than being centered on who Jesus is. Okay? Now, I need to talk a little bit about this. Because we can fight over the most insignificant of things and it will minimize the gospel. So a few, about a decade ago or so, there was something called the Worship Wars, where there was a whole stack of different churches who would almost divide over what kind of music you did and didn't have. And really it came down to preferences. I prefer this style of music, and I prefer that style of music, and they wrapped all kinds of excuses around it. But it all became about the kind of music you like to hear. So if you were a visitor to churches, and they were talking about the, view, the, the benefit of this kind of music or that kind of music, and people at the back after coffee were talking about what kind of music they preferred, and they were getting all uppity about it, what would you conclude would be of first importance in that church? The music! Who gives a rip about the style of the music? It's Jesus who's important. If you like a different kind of music to the kind of music you get and played in, in church, buy some and put it on in the car on the way home. What we do is we don't fight about that kind of thing. We keep Jesus absolutely central. So listen to this. If you take your good liberty and your, your faith holding on to the fact that Jesus is the most important thing and allow it to crush your brother, your beliefs will be spoken of as evil. Because you're looking like you're walking roughshod over other people with your liberty. And the liberty of the gospel is not something evil, it's something wonderful and good. But why is it that it will get spoken of as evil? Because your, although your beliefs were right, your actions were evil. Letting liberty be a cover for lovelessness for your brothers and sisters. That's just evil. That's hate towards your brother. And here's why it's a terrible misrepresentation of the gospel to let liberty in the gospel crush weightier matters. Look at the weightier matters, and I was just buzzing off this all week. For the kingdom of God, listen to that. You've been beckoned into a kingdom that has a future with a good ruler who loves you. That's worth getting excited about. That's worth getting a bee in your bonnet about, isn't it? And look at what it's all about. It's great, isn't it? 
is not a matter of eating and drinking, rules and regulations about those kind of things. I mean, sometimes we see these, these horrible, and they, they try to do it in a lovely way, these horrible representations of some of the Eastern religions and all the, the rituals and procedures and colours and actions they have to go through. That's horrible. It really is ugly. And it might have bright colours, but it's ugly. It's just a, a system of, uh, of just rituals and emptiness and there's no hope there. We're drawn into a kingdom with a real God who really loves us. And it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that word righteousness has got a history in the book of Romans, hasn't it? It talks about two kinds of righteousness, a positional and a performance a righteousness is a standing, a position that you are put right with God. Can you believe that? You and me, after all the things we've said, thought and done in this last week, all our innate selfishness, all our evil de- desires, all our cruel thoughts, all our foolishness that we thought was wise, and yet we can have a standing of being right with God through Jesus. We have a righteousness, and now we're in it, we get a changed heart that gives us a desire to live righteously the way we were made to live for God. A position and a performance. We get new lives, a new status, a new standing. It's wonderful. We get new lives. And look, a joy, a joy, sorry, a hope. I'll get to hope first because that's one, um, sorry, but of, of righteousness, sorry, peace and hope. As life dumps on you, how do you keep going? Well, you know, Jesus is with you and he loves you. What about joy in the Holy Spirit? Have you noticed how people who are very strict on rules tend to be bereft of joy? No, it's not about what you eat and what you drink. It's about living and walking with the living God. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. So what, so what, 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 we, what are we getting at here? This is where you'll get whether or not you're a Christian or not. If you are a Christian... Your whole life is centered on this new calling to live and be who God has made you. We don't tack religion on the side of our life. We are remade for the living God. And it's just such a strange place. It's such, so countercultural. We do not live for ourselves. The center of gravity in my life should not be me. I get to not live under the tyranny of the me or the I. And doesn't that crush us every day? I was struck by this. I get up every morning thinking, what do I want to do and how do I want to spend my day? Do you get um, stuck under that tyranny? Of course you do, every day. I have to start every day afresh and say, no, Lord, how do I use every part of my day to bless and build up others and to live with righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? It's a total transformation. So, so much of what I want to do seeks to... I think seems wise, but it robs me of those things, righteousness, peace and joy. So today was a nightmare, wasn't it? It's amazing how how fast all my desires for what I want to do and how I want my day to go and what I want it to be about just comes rushing at me. And in that moment, I need to slow down and say, no, I'm part of a kingdom saved by Jesus. I've got a hope. I've got a joy in the Holy Spirit. So pleasing God isn't about flaunting our liberty, but crying out to him every day to help me to live like Jesus, the one who laid aside his liberty so others could have a future. No, 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 no. The one who laid aside his liberty so I could have a future. And I wonder as you're even hearing that, you're thinking, yes, that is right. I don't want to do it to, 
uh, to pay Jesus back because I know I can't. But I know that that is what I was made for once he laid a hold of me and grabbed a hold of me. He made me to live this new life for him. One of love that keeps the gospel central. Lord, I despair of myself because so often I'm selfish. I want to put myself under rules and regulations or I want to flaunt my liberty. Would you make me somebody who keeps that main thing the main thing? And quickly and finally, the last few verses. Love works to build up. Somebody read for us verse 19 through to 23, please. Verse 19 through to 23. Brilliant. Thank you for reading that. So I was up at the retail part yesterday and I just like going up there because I like seeing, you know, this big scaffolding that's building because you're not building up there at the moment. The pictures. You're dead right. What did they put up first? Can you remember? What did they put up first? Oh, no, no, no. Hold on. What did they put up first to begin the building project of the city? Before they put that up? In fact, that thing's been put up on... Boards, well, so you can't see. Or fences, yeah? Okay, so the building project begins, and the first thing that they begin with is putting up the fences. Why? To stop the scallies. Okay, because if the scallies come along and start ragging away the scaffolding, breaking the tools, damaging the brickwork, the whole project, hold on John, the whole project is just wrecked. So the fences there are to stop the work being set back. And what we're being told here is it is possible by our choices with our liberty to set back, not the building of a cinema, but God's very work. Now, I wonder whether this gives you the heebie-jeebies and the shivers, because it did me as I was thinking through this this week. It has been possible, in fact, it is probable, because it was happening in Rome, so it may well be happening here, that you have actively been detrimental to the spiritual building project of the Lord. Now, I hope that worries you. Now, to be worried by that, you need to own and get a sense of the whole point of being a church family together. The reason the Lord puts us together is to help us to grow one another spiritually, not be a hindrance and to be on board with that building project. Now, I'm not saying that just because I'm a pastor, but I'm concerned for people's spiritual growth. I'm saying this because it's on every page of the Bible. There is a sense that I should be able to finger... Each and every one of you like this, at one point or another, look you in the eye and go, tell me, what have you done this week to help somebody in our church family grow? How have you encouraged them? Now, the target here isn't that high. The target is, don't be a downward drag on the ticket. Don't be a a damage to the work. But it's worth me just chucking that one out there to say we have got responsibility for one another's spiritual encouragement and being built up because it's God's big project. It's what he thinks about. It's his heartbeat. And isn't that encouraging? He seems to think the most important thing is not that we get our way, that all our projects come to pass and we get to fulfill all our ambitions and that merely that our kids behave and sit well and uh, they get a good future. No, no. He wants us to be built up in Jesus Christ for his glory because that's going to be our future. That's the big push here.
And what's happening here? Well, when it comes to this issue of, of, of matters of liberty, and there's, there's confusion over it, and there's some people thinking this and some people thinking that, then what you have to do is be somebody who works not against God, but for God to build up the unity, guard your brother and guard their conscience. Okay, so let me just read there verse uh, 19. Therefore, let us sorry, let us therefore make every effort in the ESV. It's that word pursue. So it's an active thing. I know so often in church you much rather I talked about ideas and attitudes rather than actual things you have to do. But you have to do it. Make every effort. Okay, that usually requires sacrifice. So I wonder, and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I was finding this. I was going through this. I, by the end of today, what I'm hoping is that you guys, this will be the whether or not you've got God's word today, are actually saying, "What can I do? What can I sacrifice this week so that somebody else can be encouraged? How can I do that? What, what will I give away?" In here, it's about, in some sense, it's your rights, but we're not in that problem at the moment, as, as far as I can tell, although it might be. Uh, what can I do to see somebody else built up and encouraged here? So, therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. That's upbuilding. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. For your liberties. Don't do that. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Yet we've heard that bit, and he's repeating it again. Don't be a trap. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that calls your brother, uh, causes your brother to fall. We've heard that. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Don't go sort of causing arguments about it. Maybe have a discussion about it once and leave it be. Blessed is the man who doesn't condemn himself by what he approves. So if he's somebody who's constantly talking about what he does not doesn't approve, he's condemning himself because he's not doing the greater thing, which is putting the unity and the love of his brothers first. He's self-condemned. The man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, so we don't want to be part of helping somebody do that, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So, don't condemn yourself by what you do and don't approve of. We aren't talking here about clear directives. We're talking about issues of Christian liberty. But at this point, I just wanted to say something about this, because there's... I'm going to go slightly off topic, but it's on, the, it's on the whole issue of how we make decisions about what we do and don't do and what is helpful and not. And there's three tests to your decisions about your liberties that you want to run things through. Okay, And these comes from 1 Corinthians very quickly. Okay, There is the test of utility. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, says, Apostle Paul says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. So when you're making choices about how you, what you do with your life, how you use your resources, how you use your time, what to pursue, how to make priorities in your home, in your family, in your work. First question you want to ask is, it might well be permissible to me, but is it beneficial for the Lord's purposes? Will it help me grow? The test of utility. Will it help me grow? Will it help others grow? Is it in keeping with the kingdom? I may well be free to do it. It may well be permissible, but is it beneficial? So there's your first test. Second one, a test of authority. And this one <sighs> cuts close to the bone on so many things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about, I can do plenty of things, food for the body, the body for food, but I will not be mastered by anything. It's this question of, by doing this thing or pursuing this thing, 
Will it seize control of me? Will it start to run the table? It may be neutral, but it could be wrong for me to do. And I'm going to go really close to the bone on this one. Social media. Neutral. Free to do it. But it's got an amazing power to grab a hold of you. And before you realize it, you're addicted to the trivial. You have to check, keep on checking so you don't feel left out. You know, I mean, how, how much time should, should a person spend on Instagram? We've got this covenant eyes thing that monitors uh, how much uh, usage we put on different apps on our, uh, on our mobile phones. And I'm considered incredibly strict and nasty as a father because I restrict my daughters to 30 minutes of Instagram a day. Half an hour a day. That's 180 hours a year my kids use going like, don't like, flick, flick, flick. And I'm a nasty, oppressive man. Because if I didn't put that in place, it would be two hours or three or ten. So in something like that, we use the test of authority. It may well be neutral, but will it control me? Will it pull me away from a wholehearted, solid love of Jesus? We could run that by our hobbies. So a mate of mine uh, loved the Lord, keen evangelist, but he loved football. And he found himself in church on Sunday morning running through, rather than listening and enjoying God's word, he would run through everything that happened in the game he played in the previous day and start planning what he'd do differently the next. And a point came where he said, I ain't doing football no more because at the moment it's mastering me and running, uh, running the table instead of letting Jesus run the table. So when you've got matters of liberty, you ask, well, will it benefit me, help me grow? Will, I, will it master and rule over me? And then there's the final one, the test of charity, 1 Corinthians 10. Does it hinder others? Does it get in the way of others growing, and, and, uh, which is close to this text here that we're looking at today? Does it get in the way of them growing spiritually? Does it lead to their confusion? Does it uh, contravene their conscience? How does it affect other people? And I know that's one you don't want to hear because we do, we're just soaked in the world's attitude of, well, I just want to do whatever I want to do and I don't care how it impacts on other people. But the text of the Bible keeps on drawing us back to a mutual responsibility for each other's encouragement and building up in the faith. So what is pleasing to God? What is pleasing to God and approved by him is that we lay down our liberties for the good of others. And the reason it's pleasing to him is because when you're doing that, you are never more like Jesus than when you're doing that. Because what did Christ do? The one who had ultimate liberty, total joy... Utter freedom, and he, he did the ultimate restricting of that. He brought himself down to planet Earth, put on a skin, lived under our nonsense, condescended himself to other people's junk, so that we could have a spiritual future. When we set aside our liberty and our preferences for the good of other people and for the cause of the kingdom, we are like the one who has done that for us. We put off our wants, our preferences, our convenience for a greater goal. So I wonder whether that's something you want to do for Jesus this week. I don't know what it will look like. Maybe what you need to do is say, Lord, I just want to live it my way, do my own thing. I don't want to have to face up to the responsibility of loving others. And I want to conveniently forget how much you have loved me. Please, Lord, save my soul from doing that. Show me some ways this week, even if they're small, or by the end of the day, that I could put off something that is totally legit, 
totally neutral, but I could put it off to show love, to be a spiritual encouragement to somebody else so that you get the glory. Because that's what I want my life to be about. Not Christmas trees. Jesus. That all gets easier when we sing the song of what he's done to save us, and that's exactly what we're going to do right now. We're going to sing about when I was lost, you came and rescued me. And as you're singing it, be saying to yourself, how's this going to play out in the way that I think about sacrificing for the good of others' spiritual well-being? Let's stand and sing together.